welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. So good day, everyone. This is Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory, and today's podcast is going to feature Steve Stone, Vice President of Rubric uh, Zero Labs, which is a new cybersecurity research team that Steve leads. Their purpose is to give voice to folks on the front line of cybersecurity and provide organizations with the latest threat data from their security research activities. It's called the State of Data Security, and it tries to expose, and it does, the effects that years of rising threats and expanding threat vectors are having on organizations, people, and our confidence in their ability to protect the data. Uh, Steve, uh, in addition to heading up rubric Zero Labs, teaches cybersecurity topics at McKendree University, was the vice president of adversary operations at Mandiant for like five years, Uh, was also the global intelligence lead at IBM for several years, and an engagement lead at FireEye for a few years as well, and started out, I think, as in the Air Force uh, Office of Special Investigations as a senior investigator. So Steve has lots and lots of background in investigation and and discovery here. And so welcome, Steve. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be on this podcast. Great. Thank you. So let's dump, jump in here. The State of Data Security Report provides an important view into the realities that IT and security teams face on a moment-by-moment or day-to-day basis. Some findings were that 98% of IT and cybersecurity leaders have actually dealt with a cyber attack in the last year, which is amazing to me. It shouldn't be because we get at least one every day that we are aware of. And apparently the average among those folks that were surveyed is 47 attacks per year. You've been around a while, Steve. Why do you think this keeps happening? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of really interesting things there. You know, the first is, as you mentioned, you know, Rubric Zero Labs is our threat research element, and we're just getting off the ground. So the first thing we wanted to do before we jumped into talking about anomalies or specific intrusions or specific trends was really use this opportunity to take a step back and hear from the folks that are really having to address this every single day and not come into this with assumptions. So we did that. And we did that looking at, let's look at the operational reality. Let's look at the impacts from that. And then let's look at things that we think based on discussions with these individuals and some really pretty expert cybersecurity leaders what are some takeaways to improve this situation? So that gave us a really interesting viewpoint. And the very first thing we talk about is exactly what you said, is we wanted to start with the premise of everyone's talking about this cyber threat thing, but what is it really like in the context of these IT and cybersecurity leaders? And again, as just to kind of set the scene for who these individuals are, you know, we talked to a little over 1,600 individuals, about 800 of them, so about half were at the CISO and CIO level. And the other half were at either the vice president or director level, and again, on a range of IT or SecOps teams. So when we talk about that audience having to deal with 
almost all of them, so 98% of them at their level had to deal with a cyber attack in the last year with an average of 47 cyber attacks in that time frame. That jumped out at me. I'm not surprised that organizations are dealing with cyber events. We know that. I'm not surprised that there's all kinds of events and investigations and breaches and all these other things that organizations deal with. We've known that. What really jumps out is the seniority level. This is a topic that this seniority level was not dealing with that long ago, or at least not in this kind of fashion. So I think that's one of the biggest findings out of this report. And I think the reason that's happening is is really simple. I think it's down to two major factors. The first is organizations are more reliant on things that are within the cyber realm, and we're creating more surface area to do these operations. So that trend is just going up demonstrably. And then when we look at the cyber threat landscape, it's going up in every measure, volume, impact, number of actors, types of intrusions. I mean, you you give a threat trend, and I will likely tell you that it's going up year over year. So this was, if anything, inevitable. We're doing more of our operations in this space, and there's more bad actors doing more bad things in this exact same space. And, and we think that number is going to be up even more next year. Yeah, and so do we. Retired General Keith Alexander is fond of saying that we live in the glassiest of glass houses. And, you know, according to the folks that measure these things, we are the most wired country on the planet. So from one point of view, as you just said, it's not surprising that the most wired organization would receive the most quantity of cyber attacks either. So. I also noticed in that report that like uh, a third of organizations that you surveyed had had a leadership change in the last year, uh, apparently due to due to a cyber attack. I, and I guess I am assuming this is at the CISO level. And if that's the case, why, especially in the aftermath of Uber and Twitter and Drizzly, would anybody take that job? So. There's a couple of things I would definitely love to dive into with that question. The first is we got to that data point because we asked the question of, for those organizations that are dealing with these events at this level, so again, 98% of the the field, are there impacts? Because again, we we wanted to test that assumption. And and the answer we got back was 96% of those organizations dealt with a negative impact. And we saw, you know, in the we had three elements that were clustered together right about you know 40 to 42% around um, reputational damage, loss of customers, loss of revenue. And then right behind that was this leadership change. So about a third of organizations dealt with a leadership change internally based on the cyber attack or the subsequent response to it. Again, that's one of those numbers that we thought was pretty important because that number means a few different things. First is that's a real impact. We're talking about careers and organizations. So that's that's a very real thing that's easy to look past in a micro sense. But when we look at the macro level, that's a really big impact. The second thing is that produces more stress on the system. It is inevitably more difficult to deal with these cyber attacks. And again, let's go back to the previous point. You're dealing with on average 47 of these a year last year. Well, if a third of these organizations just had to replace somebody, that's bandwidth you're having to devote to that. You're having to deal with losing somebody and the impacts of that in your organization and your people. You're having to deal with hiring, which is effort. You're having to deal with training. And now you're having to deal with bringing someone in 
And she or he may not have the corporate knowledge that the organization just learned going through these events. So there's a lot there. The other thing I would say to your question about why would anybody be a CISO, I think that's a really interesting question because CISOs universally, I think we all agree that's a really difficult position to fill in any organization. I think you see a lot of individuals looking to be CISOs, though, because you can really drive a positive impact. That's still a fairly nascent C-suite level position. Lots of boards aren't used to dealing with CISOs. Uh, I'm sure, Steve, you've seen it in your work, like even where CISOs fit into a corporate structure very wildly. So there's still a lot of ability to drive changes in organizations. And I think a lot of CISOs in my own experience, and there's no metric or stat I can give you on this. This is just purely my own interactions. I think a lot of these CISOs really want to make organizations better. They want to apply all the things they've learned along their career when these structures didn't exist, these roles didn't exist, these resources weren't there. So I I think you have a lot of individuals really trying to do their best and apply their lessons learned and grow their own industries and really help these organizations. But it's a challenging job. No two ways about it. Yeah, it is. And that's before the FTC decided that, uh, you know, they had a new charter here and and God love them. They are uh, clearly on a warpath. And, you know, if you're Joe Sullivan, you you know, I think Joe thought he was doing the right thing here. And then all of a sudden he's facing eight years of jail time. And then you have to wonder, well, you know, look, it's hard. When I did it, it was hard enough at the time as it was. And that was enough years ago so that I didn't have the kind of pressures that today's CISOs are operating under. Uh, they're just, you know, fewer threat vectors, period, right? So it was in many ways a lot easier and a lot less stressful. But I mean, I just can't imagine well, uh, today if under all that stress and then you find out that you suddenly have fiduciary responsibilities and nobody told you about, you know, hello, so my take is that, you know, CISOs and senior practitioners are are truly mission-driven. Everybody I know is. They're not doing this for the money. And a, and a, a really good CISO and a very honest friend of mine just walked out on a well-paying job after a, only a few weeks because the environment was so heavily top, toxic. And, and she's a tough kid. She's, you know, not a shrinking violet here. So your, your report says that 96% of individuals at reported significant emotional or psychological impact in the last year. It's almost a 10 out of 10, right? And the way I see it is, looks like this is only going to get worse. So what do we do? So we saw very similar impacts at the individual level that we saw at the organizational level. Um, The metric came out the exact same. So we saw 96% of organizations dealt with a negative impact from a cyber attack in the last year. And then when we asked the same question, but to an individual, we saw, you know, as you mentioned, 96% of the individuals said that they suffered a significant emotional or psychological impact, again, from specifically cyber attacks in the last year. The number one element of that was increased anxiety in the job role. Um, right behind that, we saw discussions around perceived loss of trust amongst their peers and their own teams. We saw concern over job safety. We saw, you know, loss of sleep or difficulty sleeping. So these are real impacts. And again, this is the last year. This is not ever. This is not, you know, a more far ranging thing. So when we look at that, I think there's a couple of things that we really need to take for action there. The first is we have to recognize 
these are high demand, low density assets. So I come out of the military. That was my first career. And that's a very typical military term. You look for when you're doing your mission planning, what are the things that you just absolutely need, but are razor thin or are hot resources? And, and you start planning around that. And our people, I think, frankly, in this industry are our high demand, low density assets. Uh, there's all kinds of discussions about workforce. Um, we talk about that in this report. We're not the only ones. Virtually every major research organization is talking about the lack of a workforce and, and all of the capabilities that brings. So we have to find ways to solve this. We have to take this for action, I think, is the first part. We just cannot churn through these high density, so these high demand, low density assets and have our people feel this way. The second part is, we have to recognize that this is a layered effect, meaning this just didn't start a month ago. These are individuals who are, again, let's go back to that seniority level. This isn't their first year doing this. This isn't their second year doing this. They've been doing this year over year over year. And this wear and tear is becoming cumulative. We're hearing that very clearly. So we've got to find a way to reverse that trend or pivot it a different direction. And the third thing I think when we look at this is, and we talk about this in our report, what we think are some significant recommendations to address all of these challenges. And this specific people one, we've got to bring more resources to bear from organizations. We have to stop asking the same small group of individuals and teams to solve problems that are existential threats to organizations. We have to do like we do in non-cyber aspects. And, and I think we've got really good parallels. If you look at the aviation industry and the way they approach safety, that's not the safety team's role. That's everyone's role. All kinds of teams are involved. If we look at the automotive industry, very similar things. We look at the energy industry and how they work things. We have to start bringing more and more teams to bear and not just have this be problems to be solved. And we expect hero mode every night and every weekend from these same individuals. So I think there's, there's some ways that we can go after that. And then we also have to get at the resourcing. This problem is not going away. It's, if anything, growing and growing and growing. And I don't know what other data points we need to see that. So we've got to create more bandwidth for these individuals to deal with these challenges, as well as bring more resources to bear. So we create more resiliency in our individuals and in our organizations. Those are really critical things, we think. There clearly isn't a, a level of protection that's afforded to the CISO or the lead security guy in any of these companies. And if federal regulators are going to continue to act as though those individuals have, you know, an ultimate responsibility for protecting the companies uh, against cyber attacks, then somebody's misinformed at the federal regulatory level, right? I mean, because we all know that that's what I just said is impossible, right? That we can't protect, you know, and, and so there somebody is, we need to have an acceptance at a very senior at the level of the prosecution that it's, you know, it's an impossibility and we, you know, we can't hold CISOs accountable except where there's, you know, there's obvious, you know, malfeasance or intentional activity on their part. Uh, it, it just seems to me, I mean, I, no one's representing the CISO at the moment is kind of what I guess I'm saying. And, you know, I looked at the report and you had 92% or 9 out of 10 organizations that believe that they'll be unable to maintain business continuity if they have a, a cyber attack in the next year. 
And I think it also said that a third of their board or the executive leadership have little or no confidence in in the organization's ability to recover critical data and applications. The whole space is beginning to sound like a poster child for a you know dysfunctional family. What good does all of the cybersecurity spending and technology growth and training and all the rest of that? What what good does that do if if none of the organizations that supports have any confidence in in their ability to uh, pull it off. So I think there's some good news amongst that. I think the first thing is, if we take a step back, the fact that this is even a conversation at the board level, I think is important. And I think a very positive step. We've both been doing this long enough where I can remember the first time I talked to a board and I would be the first cyber person that had ever engaged this board. I think those days are effectively done. Boards are involved. C-suites are involved. Now, are we where we want to be? No, we're, we're absolutely not. But I think we're trending down that path. Uh, just again, the sheer fact that we're seeing this as a discussion point is important. Another thing I think is we've got to start looking at this as not just being, again, the CISO problem or even just the CIO problem. There's tasks here for every C-suite executive. There's tasks here for other teams. There's all these other capabilities and responsibilities and frankly, expertise areas for these things to be tied in. Um, we should be talking about the responsibilities of the CEO and the CFO and our chief legal and all these other entities. And I don't think, again, that we're near where we want to be for that, but we're seeing that expansion where I think we're very nascent in that as, I'll say, a collective. But I think that's starting to grab hold a little bit. And then on the regulatory end, and we talk about this in the report, there's, I think, good news, bad news there. The good news is, from a rubric perspective, we're very supportive of government efforts. We're very supportive of whole of government. We're very supportive of partnerships and alliances and all these things, because that's how we're going to solve these massive challenges. We're not going to solve them without other entities bringing their resources to bear. They can do things that we cannot as a company. They're going to do things that other organizations cannot, just like in every other realm, right? So cyber is not unique. This has been a topic in, in virtually every other industry. So we think that that's good. The flip side is this is a challenge that we talk about quite openly. Um, there's a great term that we discuss quite a bit as the cyber poverty line. Wendy Nather, who is on the, the CISO panel at Cisco, I think is the one that it gets credit for coining that term. But it effectively means there's some organizations that can deal with what they need to from a cyber threat perspective, and there's some that can't. And you're either above that line or you're below that line. I think these regulatory motions are actually going to increase that. These organizations are going to have to get smarter on policy and regulations and interacting with government and all these other things. That's challenging when you don't have a lot of the resources to do those on top of the cybersecurity resources. So this is going to be a challenge for Fortune 100 companies. But what about the thousands of other organizations that their IT shop is a person doing it part-time or their head lawyer is also maybe their CISO? And, and there's, there's a range of these situations. This regulatory focus is going to have to address that. And that's the thing that we want to be very focused on at Rubric. And how do we help solve some of those problems and help enable those organizations meet those needs? Yeah. And what you just described is, I, I hope you're right. You know, I hope that we're moving in, in the right direction. But when you looked at very specifically, look at uh, the Uber case, 
you know, and you and you and you trace the history of the of the initial motion. The uh, they had initially targeted the CEO and the chief legal guy and, and everybody but Sullivan. But at the end of the day, by the time they got done with this stuff, Sullivan was the only guy that they felt they had they could build a compelling case against, you know, which is interesting to me. It's also interesting and depressing to me that the rest of the management team, you know, essentially, essentially uh, were able to get non-prosecutorial agreements uh, in exchange for their testimony, and they all turned around and tes- testified against Joe. You know, whether Joe's a good guy, bad guy, made mistakes, didn't make mistakes, whatever is irrelevant because there'll be another. You know, next week it'll be somebody else. It'll be the similar sort of wild west outing as the way I see this, uh, and and nobody. You know, we aren't. There's not a legislative body that seems to be in control of this, so um, it could go on forever. I think there's a big difference between CISO's best intentions and their actual ability to execute on those intentions. I mean, there's no CISO. I mean, Joe did was didn't <laughs> didn't create intentionally a future where he was facing eight years of incarceration for that. Certainly, and I you know so I've got a book coming out in December called "Losing the Cybersecurity War." It's totally in line with your findings in this report. One of our views and it lines up with what you found was that. Despite years of awareness around ransom events and responses, what three quarters of IT and security leaders reported that they are likely to consider paying the ransom, and half said extremely are very likely to pay the ransom. What's your take on that? I mean, why why are folks anxious to ignore the FBI advice on ransomware? So that was another one of those discussions that really jumped out at us. And and you're absolutely right with the numbers. You know, we we basically asked um, these same individuals a two-part question, which is, how likely are you to consider this as just part of due diligence of responding to these events? And the other part is, how likely are you to actually pay this? And we saw that, you know, about three out of four would consider it. And just a little over half consider themselves likely or extremely likely to pay that ransom. We asked that as a hypothetical, but again, I think those data points line up. You know, we recently had the FinCEN report come out about ransomware statistics that they're seeing from banking transactions and all those things. And those numbers really line up. There's a number of other, you know, great research elements out there around how often are ransomware payments being made. And I think those numbers that we're asking as hypotheticals really match some, some pretty granular touch points out there. So. What I think is most important is the context around that. Ransomware, we're not a year into this. This isn't the first major year of ransomware. We're multiple years into this dominating the threat landscape. And I've been doing this business long enough to have been wrong a bunch. And one of the things I was wrong on when we first several years ago started seeing the uptick in ransomware, I did not think it was going to be the dominant topic at this point in the end of 2022 going into 2023. I, I was wrong. I, I would not have forecast the preponderance of events and impacts and driving everything that it's driving. So I think what that tells us is this, there's still a lot of work to be done here. And what I mean by that is, I don't think any organization wants to pay ransom. I, I have not talked to a single person that thinks that will solve their problems or would prefer that as a way out they're having to approach that as something that is just an option they have to consider. The situation remains dire enough that they must consider it 
And in some cases, that's their only option for a range of reasons. What I think that tells us, if we really you know, spend time stripping all that out, there's a few things inside there. One is organizations, I think, are still struggling with the reality between what they need to run their operations and the cyber and IT requirements for that. I don't think those two things are mapped well enough to each other. The second thing I think is when we talk about the vendor space, I think we're still not providing enough cohesive solutions or solutions that work effectively together. So I think that we're we're not doing a good enough job as an entire industry providing real solutions to clients. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in these numbers. And then the third part is, and I think this is where we're seeing more and more touch points as the government is becoming more involved, is it's one thing to say, hey, we don't think an organization should pay this, which I, I absolutely think is a valid position. But that is a policy. And then you try to apply that in a specific situation as a company is facing an existential crisis. There's a, a hundred examples in the public at this point around that. That might not be an option they can take. And, and again, that's not unique to cyber. This stuff happens in other industries. There's all kinds of trade-offs. And so I think what that number really tells us is, we are not near far enough along that path as a total community. We just have to get better as distinct organizations. We have to get better as vendors providing solutions. We have to get better as governments bringing government solutions to this. And we have to get better at integration and, and making this not be such a profitable business. Because I think that's the flip side. Most of my background is in the threat side of this. This is a really profitable model for cyber criminals. They get to choose a range of ways they can monetize their bad actions. And year over year, they're choosing to go to ransomware. It's meeting a lot of needs for them. We probably need to shift that dynamic. And that probably needs to be part of the conversation as well. Yeah, of course, we need to shift the dynamic. But, you know, the of the whatever it is, 4,000, you know, cybersecurity product vendors in the space, you know, I don't think people, you know, are having trouble sleeping at night because their product doesn't solve any of this, but that is the case, right? I mean, there's no product that prevents ransomware, right? I mean, it's that we know that. And you had mentioned that operations teams and IT teams, you know, need to be aligned and yeah, you know, of course, but you, your report said that like one third of of folks surveyed said their own teams were somewhat or not at all aligned when it came to defending the larger organization. I'm not sure what that means. Maybe you can explain that one because I, I sort of stumbled around that. I'm not, I don't know what the implication of that is. Yeah. So what we've got there is, you know, we heard that about 31% of these leaders said that their respective IT and security operations teams were either somewhat or not at all aligned when it came to defending their organizations. So what it effectively means is you got two out of three saying, yep, different teams are prepared to work together and about one out of three saying, we're not. We've, we've got challenges there and we still need to figure that out. So I think there's good news, bad news there. The bad news is there's one out of three that don't think that they're aligned and that lack of alignment will play itself out when they're dealing with one of these cyber events. You've got two thirds that say they are aligned. So there's two sides to that coin. The other thing I would say is, uh, and you know, you mentioned no vendors losing sleep over this. I'll use Rubric as an example. We're really trying in a range of ways to help bring these teams together. It's really important for us 
that we're delivering solutions that can help unite these teams and bring our capability and the capabilities that they might have with other technologies. We're doing this through integrations and partnerships. And I won't walk everybody. I mean, it's all on the rubric website. I won't go through all that. But I think those are critical things. And I think that's a task that we have to look at. It's not enough to just say, hey, this technology does X, and we think it does it better than any other vendor. It has to be, this technology does this. Here's other ways other teams can use that. And here's how this technology can work with other technologies you likely have. And again, bring these teams together, bring these tools together, bring these resources together. And that's going to have to be a way that that works as well as, and again, I'll, I'll speak from the rubric standpoint, this comes down to organizations working together. You know, we're active in a number of partnerships with other organizations. We're active in a number of working hands-on with other vendors. That wasn't the case for vendors five years ago, 10 years ago. It was the exact opposite. We wanted to create isolated ecosystems. Um, I've been in the vendor space, you know, for the better part of 15 years, and I've seen that change demonstrably. So we've got to be good partners for our clients. And the better we are at that, the better off these organizations are going to be. And and statistics like that 31%, we're going to help them close that delta. Again, there's no silver bullet. There's no perfect solution. But there are things that we can all do better to help that. You know, I apologize for that. It was sort of a broad brush statement on my part. You're right. There are vendors, and I know several of them, including you guys, that are sincerely mission-driven. So I apologize for that. You know, we've had Annika on the podcast as well, and she's terrific, and I'm glad you guys have her. And maybe before I get to the final question here, I know we're getting short on time, give you an opportunity to say a word or two about Rubric and and what your product is and what your vision for the future is. Yeah, so thank you for that. What we really do here at Rubric is we want to really focus on helping organizations in data security. We want to really help provide capabilities around how can organizations secure their data better. We're adamant believers in every cybersecurity situation ultimately comes down to data. That's the most critical asset that needs to be secured. And that's the most highly coveted asset that bad actors are going after. So we want to start there. We want that to be our main focus. And we really focus on that. Um, And again, we want to focus on that wherever data resides. And what we're seeing is organizations are hybrid. So we as Rubrik need to be hybrid as well. We have to work on premises. We have to work in the cloud. We have to work with SaaS apps and then really provide data security and visibility across all of those elements. And really what we try to focus on is three main components. We want to focus on data resiliency, data observability, and data remediation. In essence, the other folks that have put a lot of work into making those really profound messages will cringe a little bit when I strip it down. But can you understand where your data is, how it's being accessed, and how it's being secured? That observability piece is critical to decision making. The second part, can you be resilient? Can you be better prepared for the next breach? We really believe that this is not that you're never going to be under a cyber event or you're never going to have an intrusion. We're going to have to work with organizations to get better breach over breach and focus on that resiliency and protect the most critical parts. And then the third part is that data remediation. How granular and fast can organizations remediate the threats that they're under, whether that's you know a cyber attack or disaster recovery, or they just want to do their operations better, or they want to apply better context and policies. How do they build that remediation in? And we try to really focus there because we want to be very pragmatic. This has to work. There has to be actions here. So that's really, in a nutshell, what we're at for Rubric. 
Yeah, and uh, that's a great sort of three-point roadmap for approaching cybersecurity these days. You know, the sort of the third point you made is the acceptance of the fact that, you know, you're going to get breached. And then, you know, we never focused much up until very recently on the remediation part of this puzzle. And we absolutely, absolutely need to, in addition to, you know, resilience. Final question. The report says that more than 89%, again, nine out of 10 respondents believe public and private partnerships are important to solve cybersecurity challenges, but less than half were involved in any sort of partnership. And from my point of view, that seems that seems like a bigger number than what I'm used to seeing, and, and none of that's changed in years. Uh, do you see any progress anywhere around that? So we see some progress. And what we ended up with was, you know, we were asking a number of questions about where do these decision makers want to apply their strategies. And this was one of those elements we ran across. And there's a section of the report that basically outlines several different things to include this section around. It's not that these leaders don't have things that they think will be beneficial. They're struggling to implement that. And so when we asked that question, you know, almost nine out of 10 believe these partnerships between public and private organizations are beneficial. About two out of three felt they're critical but only about 44%, so a little less than half, are involved in at least a partnership. So what we really see there is uh, the real delta is between what they want to do and what they're able to execute in the last year. And I think this all goes back to these these systems are overtasked. They're, they're facing such strain and such wear and tear, they're not able to get to all of the things that would be beneficial. And so I think the good news is there's a desire to be there and there's efforts to be there. The bad news is it's really difficult, especially when we look at all the other challenges. And I think another good analogy is, you know, every every major threat research project or product I've ever seen at some point makes a recommendation about go back to the fundamentals, update your patching, look at vulnerabilities, (laughs) do better asset management. That has been in every report I've ever seen that every credible researcher has ever put out. I know that's a very adamant language, but I, I actually feel that strongly about it. I don't think it's that organizations don't see the value of that or don't know how to do it. It's just hard. It's complicated. It's challenging, especially with the volume and the impact of everything else they're having to deal with. So I think that there's a real capacity challenge, not a knowledge challenge. And that helps us understand where to go next. I, I agree. There's a definitely a capacity challenge, but I also think there's a small knowledge challenge as well. I mean, we embrace very complex technologies here with, I think, a very minimal understanding of what, what those technologies are about. But we could, that's probably a topic for another day. And thank you, Steve. I, I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day, I'm sure, is not, uh, is pretty hectic. And to spend with me and our audience here. Again, this is Steve Stone, the guy that runs the Rubric Zero Labs project for Rubric, and I appreciate you you joining us. Thanks, Steve, for having me on. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and just let us know if you want to have another one. Thanks yeah, a lot. I do want to have I do want to have another one, and we'll we'll figure that out in the next couple of months because there's much more to talk about here, and I think it gives our audience a good flavor for. You know, a couple of guys that have been around a little bit see in terms of the slope of the mountain we're trying to climb here. So 
in any event, thank you also to those listeners that I'm talking about and uh, and appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to listen to this. And, and until next time, I'm Steve King, your host, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.